day for us as a church because it is the Evans family last their their last day with us. And I say bittersweet, uh, bitter in the sense that we we don't want to see them go and that we uh, we're going to miss them terribly. The sweet only comes in the confidence of knowing that if someone is doing what the Lord has called them to do, then we want to always celebrate that. We always want to uh, follow God's direction and, and give praise to him and honor to him for leading us and, and walking in obedience. And even the point of the message this morning is going to be about listening to God's voice and then doing what it is that God calls us to do and, and doing what it is that God says for us to do. So even, uh, even in that, you know, the, the, the passage we're going to look at this morning points us to that point, but it, it's not, uh, not a day that we've been looking forward to in, in any way, but uh, here we are. And so tonight, I, I say all that because this is where I'm, I'm headed with that. Tonight, we're going to have a time where we celebrate them as a family, and we want to invite you back. We, we think it's going to be a, a really a tremendous evening. There's going to be a lot of great music and a chance for us to uh, just celebrate them, give gifts to them, and, and honor the service that they've had here in this church for a little over the last three years, and so we want to do that well and and do it in style. So we want to invite you back tonight at 6 o'clock for that. But along with that, let me say as well that both this morning and this evening, we will be receiving a love offering in honor of the Evans as a way to just bless them and, and show our love and appreciation to them. And so I would encourage you to give to that as well. You can do that in in our time when we receive the offering this morning. You can just Write, uh, write love offering on the, the envelope as you turn that in this morning. And uh, if you want to do that tonight, you'll be able to do that tonight as well. And so I just want to encourage you to think about that and, and participate with that. All right. All right. So now I'll dismiss all of our folks to kids crew, our leaders and our kids who are sixth grade and under. They're going to head upstairs for a time of worship designed specifically for our children. And so as they do that, I want to invite you to turn in, to Judges chapter 6 in your Bible. We are studying through the book of Judges right now and looking at the stories of the different judges and the ways that God used these men and women to lead his people and ultimately even the lessons that we can draw from this for our own journey of faith. And so we're going to be in Judges chapter 6 today and we're going to begin looking at the story of Gideon. But we're going to break the story of Gideon up and see part of it today and part of it again next week. So kind of parts one and two of how God worked through this story of Gideon to ultimately deliver his people and accomplish his work through Gideon, his, his leader who served as a judge over God's people. And so Judges chapter 6, and on the backside of your worship guide, there's a place for you to follow along and take notes as we work through the, the text this morning. If you're visiting or you're not, not normally with us, then that's something that we try to do each and every week is provide those notes, it's just a way for you to be able to follow along. There are some blanks that you'll be able to fill in along the way, and we'll provide the, the things that you need for the fill-in-the-blanks on the screen, you know, especially for all of our, our type A people that have got to get the blanks, right? You know, you've got to... You, uh, some people kind of do that Mad Lib style, and so they just kind of guess what I'm going to say before I say it, and then sometimes they'll share with me the things. Uh, sometimes we'll find, you know, pretty hilarious examples of that left over in the pews, uh, after. So watch what you're doing, right? That stuff makes its way back to me when you, uh, uh, when you do that. So it, it's actually kind of funny. Doug regularly does that. Like he regularly fills it out and just gives me a copy and says, here's what you should have preached, you know, or something like that. 
uh, my kids, my own children will do that sometimes, so I don't know what that says, but uh, we don't, you know, if, if you find some, uh, some comedic relief in that, that's good, I suppose, but we do that as much as anything so that you can hold on to this so that over time you can look back at these notes and be able to uh, see systematically as we work our way through these passages, these books in the Bible, how God is working and, and what's going on there with that. So Judges chapter 6, where we find ourselves this morning. And the, the passage that we're going to study in Judges is actually going to be broken into three parts. We're going to look at this in three different sections today and then draw some application points from this. And so the first section, the first uh, piece of this that we want to look at are the first 10 verses. And in this, I want us to see the prophet's announcement. Okay, so as we work our way through this text this morning, look at me, look with me, I should say look at me if you choose to, I guess, but look with me at the prophet's announcement that is delivered here in these first 10 verses of Judges chapter 6. We read that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now this is, at this point, this is a familiar pattern. They would walk with God for a season and then they would stray away from him and then they would cry out to God. God would raise someone up to deliver them. They would turn their hearts back to him for a season and then again over time their hearts would drift and they would wander back into a life of idolatry and sin. And so here they are yet again in this same familiar pattern. And we see that the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for the help to the Lord. And when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and account rather on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you, and I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. And so what we find here in this in this story is, again, this familiar, this familiar cycle of events that the Israelites have, have now, again, wandered into sin and idolatry. They have wandered away from God. Their hearts have drifted, and they're worshiping the Baals and the Asherah, which we have seen are these, these pagan gods, these false idols that they were tempted to worship again and again throughout their history in the Old Testament. And so because they wandered into these familiar sins that they had done before, God again sends a foreign people to oppress and to dominate over the Israelites. Now the Midianites at one time were sympathetic to the Israelites. They had even served as allies to the Israelites. The Midianites are the descendants of a a, a people group who can draw their heritage or trace their ancestry back to Abraham himself. Abraham's second wife was the 
the, the, I guess the line of this lineage, if you were to trace it back. And, and so they could trace their lineage as well, all the way back to Abraham. And in fact, Moses' father-in-law was a Midianite. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. And so Moses, Moses married a, a Midianite woman. The Midianites gave shelter to Moses when he fled from Egypt during that period of time when, when he fled Egypt after having killed someone before God spoke to him to lead him back to Egypt to be the one who would lead the people out of bondage through the Exodus. And so through it, in all of this, we see that there's some history here between these people, between the Midianites and the Israelites. But over time, after the Israelites had settled in the Promised Land, there began to be friction between they and the Midianites to the point now where the Midianites are oppressing them, they have conquered them, and not only are they oppressing them and have conquered them, but they do it in, in almost, a, uh, almost in a terrorist-like way, that the way that they're described here is like locusts who would come in and they would devour everything in the land, all of the crops, all of the produce, all of the animals, to the point where the Israelites took to the hills, they hid in the mountains, and they created these, these dwelling places, these caves and places where they would hide in the hill country when the Midianites would come into the land and, and encamp there in the land of Israel. And so the picture here that you have over these seven years is that they, they meaning the, the Midianites, would basically wreak havoc on the Israelites in such a way that they used up everything. They destroyed and took and took everything that the Israelites had, and the Israelites reached the point of utter exhaustion. And in that moment, they cried out to God, God, where are you? Where are you? The God who delivered us from Israel, the, the, the God who, who rescued us. And notice what God says to Israel as they cry out to him through his prophet. Now, we don't know who exactly this prophet is, but through this prophet, God announces that this is my judgment on you for your sin, basically is, is what he says. And so look at what he, he says here. This prophet speaks in verse 7 and 8 and 9 and 10. He says that they cried out to the Lord on the count of the Midianites, verse 7 tells us, verse 8, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. So essentially the word that God speaks to Israel through the prophets is, listen, I have delivered you. I have rescued you. I have led you out of bondage. I have provided for you in every way. I've given you everything, he says to them. And yet the last phrase that, that the prophet speaks here says it all. But you have not obeyed my voice. And so the problem with what Israel was facing is that these are the consequences of their sin and their rebellion against God. These are the consequences for this pattern that they find themselves in again and again of disobeying and wandering away from God. God says to them through his prophet, what you're experiencing is my judgment that's been visited upon you because of your sin. You have not obeyed me. And so God announces to Israel that, that they're being oppressed, not because he is powerless, not because 
he doesn't love his people, but rather because he is allowing them to experience the pain that comes as a consequence of their sin and their rebellion. So we see, first off, the prophet's announcement. But next we see that as we've already seen again and again in our study of of Judges, that in time, in due season, God raises up someone to deliver his people. And so that's exactly what the Lord does here. And God anoints him as the leader over his people, as the one through whom God would provide for his children, through whom, the one through whom God would deliver his people. And so we see God's anointing here as it's, as it's shown on the life of Gideon. So read with me in verse 11 and, and following. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah. I, I think that's such a funny name, right? That it's Ophrah is the name of this place. Uh, which belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite. And while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Now let's stop there and let's talk about what's happening because this is significant. So because the Midianites would, would come into the land and they would basically set up camp and they would consume everything, all the produce, all of the, all of the, the, the animals, I mean basically everything. They consumed everything like locusts, right? And because of this, the Israelites began to... They began to try to hide things, right? They would hide in the hill country in these caves, but they would also try to hide their crops and their produce. So as we see Gideon enter into the story here, Gideon is, is treading out the wheat in a wine press. So normally the wheat would be threshed, would be, would, would be uh, processed, if you want to use that word in, in this way, in, in a barn or even perhaps just in, in an open field. But Gideon is doing this in a wine press, in a concealed building, in a, in a place that was designed in such a way that it would, that it would keep, that it would capture the, the grapes as they were tread in that vintage, in that wine press. But it provided some concealing and some covering. And so he's doing this in sort of a covert way. And the reason that he's doing that is really prominently, pri- primarily we would say because he's trying to hide this from the Midianites, but also what this represents for us here is the fact that Gideon is sort of an anti-hero in this sense. Gideon is not the strong, valiant warrior, you know, the brave one that God was going to raise up to lead his people because of his strength and his might. Gideon was, was kind of a meek man, a man who's hiding from his enemies and trying to provide for his family, but doing it in a way that he's, that he's trying to He's trying to keep it concealed. He's doing it undercover, if you want to think of it that way. And so in that sense, we see that Gideon is sort of the, the, not the hero that you would expect to lead God's people into battle. But that's exactly why God has chosen him, the story is going to reveal. And it's also through that that God will receive glory. And, and so that's an important part of this story that I don't want you to miss. So he's beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. In verse 12, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now there's some, there's some irony of sorts in the way that the angel of the Lord addresses Gideon. Gideon is not a mighty man of valor. He's a man who's hiding from his enemies as he treads out his wheat in a wine press, and yet the angel of the Lord, which we're going to see in just a moment, is actually a theophany. This is, this is a physical representation. This is God himself in flesh appearing before Gideon. And 
God himself calls him, not by what Gideon would have been known by, by everyone else, but by what the Lord sees in him. That's a sermon in and of itself right there, right? I mean, that'll preach. The idea that God saw in Gideon what others didn't see. God looks at Gideon, the the man who was hiding from his enemies, the man who's treading out his wheat in secret, and God sees a mighty man of valor who he's going to raise up to lead his people. And the truth is that God always sees us for what he wants to make us rather than what we are at the moment, right? God sees us for who we can be through his power and his strength and not through who, for, for what we are in our own power and our own strength. And that is such an important part of Gideon's story and who he is as even a character here that I, that I don't want you to miss. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, then why, has, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him. This is how we know that this is God because the text tells us. Now the Lord turns to him. So God himself, again, in flesh, speaks to Gideon. Says to him, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, please, Lord, How can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you will strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from me here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. And so Gideon went into the house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. And the meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. The angel of the Lord said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour out the broth over him. And he did so. The angel of the Lord reached out tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight and then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord and Gideon said alas O Lord God for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face but the Lord said to him peace be with you do not fear you shall not die And Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. And to this day, it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the the Abiezrites. And that night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. Now, these are idols that belong to Gideon's father, right? His own family is wrapped up in this idolatry. His own family is marked by these sins. No doubt Gideon himself had possibly offered offerings to these these false idols. There's sin in his own life. Again, he's the the antitype to, to the hero that you would expect. And yet God works through him and calls him a mighty man of valor. And he tells him, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood 
of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So not only does God tell him to tear down this altar to Baal, but then cut down the Asherah and then use the wood from that to create a fire to offer the sacrifice of this bull that they used. It was, they were, basically they were to, not only to destroy these false idols, but they were to completely wipe the, the face of this ground with them and then do it in such a way that showed the true power of God over all of these false idols. And so there's this picture here of God's might and his strength over and above the sin of his people. And so we see God's anointing is revealed here on the hand of his servant Gideon. And Gideon is someone that we should identify with. When, we, when you see the picture of who Gideon is in this story, Gideon is someone that we ought to identify with. He is, he's, he's the everyman, right? He's the average Joe, the, the regular guy that wasn't anything special, wasn't a, a mighty warrior of val, valor. He, he wasn't someone that you would expect to raise up and lead the people of Israel into battle against these these oppressive enemies of theirs. He's just the, the everyman. He's just the, the regular guy. And yet, in this picture of how God works through Gideon, we see that God wants to work through us, ordinary, average people, right? We can identify with that. You may feel like, well, there's nothing special about me. God's not anointed me in any special way. I mean, I, I, I'm, my life isn't marked by any real true call of greatness, I'm just an average man or I'm just an average woman. And yet that's exactly who God uses here and he does it in a way that shows us that he can do the same thing through us if we will follow him. You know, that there might be times in our lives when we find ourselves in a position similar to Gideon, unable to recognize or reconcile, rather, the spiritual victories that we read about in the Bible with the struggles that we're going through in our lives. Have you ever been there? You read about these stories of victory and the stories of God's movement and God's power in Scripture, and yet you feel sometimes like, my life is so ordinary. I don't ever experience these kinds of victories, these kind of supernatural things in, in my life. And it's difficult even at times to reconcile how God may want to work through us in light of all the great things that we see him do in Scripture. We agonize over questions of life, right? I mean, if we're to be honest, we have doubts and we have questions and we wonder, where is God in these difficult moments in my life? And, and how does God want to use me? And how do I even know if it's the voice of God leading me or if it's just me making something? We wrestle with these real questions of faith. And that's exactly what we see in Gideon, where is God who did all of these things that our fathers told us about? If you really are the Lord, then where have you been, he says, basically. Where have you been? Why aren't you giving us the victory that we, that we anticipated, that we expected? Why are, why are we going through all of this? And yet, God's word to Gideon is this. He says, did I not, do I not send you, Gideon? Go now, go now, take this might, take this fire that's inside of you. And Gideon's probably looking at him like, what? I just, what fire are you talking about, right? I mean, I, 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 was just, I was just telling you that I'm not the guy, I'm not the one, I'm not the one you're looking for, right? And yet God says to him, no, you take this passion, you take this strength that you had and go. And then he says this important statement, 
do I not send you? Gideon, am I not the one who's sending you? God promises to be with Gideon through everything that he's calling him to do. And isn't that exactly what God has said to us in his great commission that Jesus delivered to his disciples? What were the words that he said to them? And lo, I am with you always. Right? The same promise that God gave Gideon is the promise that he's given to us. You may not think that you're anything special. You may not think that you have all of this great strength or this charisma or these, you know, the, 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 the ability to lead God's people in, in any special way. You may not think much of yourself, and yet God says this word to you. I am with you. And when God is with you, Romans chapter 8 tells us, then who can be against you? So God is going to deliver Israel through Gideon, the unlikely hero, the least in his family who are the least in his tribe, who are the least of all the tribes of Israel. And yet that's exactly who God is going to use in this story to deliver his people. What we learn from this is you and I don't have to be clever. We don't have to be obedient. We don't have to have a lot of charisma or even think of ourselves as these natural born leaders for God to use us. We simply need to act in obedience. And as we do that, as we obey God and follow his call, even as we saw last week in the story of Deborah, right? Faithfulness in little things, obedience in the little things. And it's through that that God will work in us because God has all the power that is needed to do what he's called us to, right? Do you believe that? God has all the power that he needs to deliver you from whatever it is that you're facing. God has all the power that he needs to raise you up, to use you mightily in the life of your family and your friends and your community. What you need is to obey his voice. So God didn't choose Gideon because he was the strongest or the mightiest. But what Gideon lacked in charisma, he made up for in God's anointing. God's hand was on him. And that's what really anointing is, right? The anointing is the hand of God in someone's life. So the question would be, well, how do do I pursue God's anointing then? And, And here's the answer that I would tell you from my own experiences in life. You don't. You say, wait a second, you just told me that I should, that I should, Obey what God has said, and, and, and I would say yes, but you don't need to pursue God's hand of anointing because what happens is when we chase after God's hand of anointing, we, we tend to race ahead of God or move in directions because we end up trying to control what God wants to do. You and I don't need to try to control God's anointing. Instead, we simply need to respond in obedience to him, and if we do that, if we move in obedience then God will work in us and through us and his hand will be on us. So we see the prophet's announcement. We see Gideon's anointing. And then I want us to see finally, excuse me, we see God's anointing. And then we see Gideon's action. God's anointing, God's leadership in Gideon's life moved him to act It gave him the confidence that he needed to act in obedience. And so let's read about Gideon's action, starting in verse 27. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. 
But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So again, Gideon obeys the Lord, but he does it covertly, right? He does it, he does it by night rather than by day. He's not the valiant warrior, the mighty man that God has called him to be. And yet, through his obedience, we see that God is going to stir the lives of others to the point of action and obedience. Verse 28, and when the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down and the Asherah beside it was cut down and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. So Gideon did these things. He tore down the altar of Baal. He cut down the Asherah. He used the wood to sacrifice the bull and just left it there for everyone to see, right? And they said to one another, these are the men of the town, right? Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. The altar of Baal that was on his father's land, the Asherah on his father's land, right? These things that were a part of his own past, these things that were a part of his own, his own life and his own story, he, he tore them down. Symbolically, he was ridding his own life of the idolatry and the sin of his past, getting right with God. And when others saw it, their response was, this man needs to die. And notice his father's response. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Joash, who was the patron over this pagan altar, right? Joash, the one who, who owned, if you will, this altar, is moved by his son's obedience and says, where is this God Baal? If he's really a God, let him, let him defend himself. Verse 32, therefore on that day Gideon was called Jerubael, which basically means contend against Baal, right? That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. So, Gideon was given a new name on that day, a nickname that, that says he contends against Baal. In other words, he fights the false gods. He fights the idols. Gideon, this man who was just the average Joe, became known far and wide as the man who fights idolatry because of his simple acts of obedience to do what God had called him to do. And so we see in, in Gideon's action here, we see that God is working through Gideon to move the hearts of others. His own father was stirred because of the obedience that he sees in the life of his son. His own father recognizes that this was sinful and this was idolatrous. These, these, these idols that we have, these altars to these false gods. And he says to anyone, he says, if, if Baal's a god, let him fight for himself. My son has done what is right here. God works through that to lead the hearts of people back to him. So we see the prophet's announcement. We see God's anointing, his hand on Gideon, and then we see Gideon's action here. So what can we learn from this story? Well, I've alluded to several things, but let me, let me come back around to this now and, and 
let's look at some points of application that I think will, will show us that in this story, we really find an example for how we ought to live in response to God's leadership in our own lives. The first point is this. We ought to view God's discipline as loving, and we ought to respond with humility and with obedience to him. In this passage, through the announcement of his prophet, we see that God has disciplined his people. God has delivered them into the hand of their enemy. And then he tells them, I've done this because you did not obey me. Because again and again, you have sinned and you have turned your hearts away from me. So God, is, God has given them over to the consequence of their sin and their, and their idolatrous choices. When we see God work in our lives, disciplining us, when we see him rebuking us, it, it ought to cause us to respond not in anger, not in bitterness, but with humility and obedience. What's interesting is that Israel seems to have forgotten the reason why they were in this situation to begin with. You know, when I was growing up, when we would get in trouble my parents didn't have to say a word, right? There was the look, and every parent knows about the look, and every child. So basically, that's all of us, right? Because you're either a parent or you're a child or you're both. We know about the look, right, that our parents give us. All they have to do in those moments is give you the look, and the look says, I should probably stop this. <laughs> I'm, I'm in for it if I don't stop, right? And so as a parent, I've, I've worked over time, you know, 12 years now, to develop the look, that you just give your kids a stern enough look, you know, that, that, that face that says it all. But I remember so vividly my own parents' look that they would give this. And that look said, I'm toast. <laughs> I'm in for it. This week, uh, one evening, Rayleigh and I went out. And as we were getting ready to go out, uh, we, were, uh, we were visiting for just a minute with my parents who had come over to our house to watch our kids. And so my parents had come to the house uh, they were going to stay with the kids and, and put the kids to bed, and we were going to go out on a date and just have some time together. And I don't even remember now what got us off on talking about this, but I was describing for my kids how my parents used to discipline us and that they would spank us, you know, as kids. And I was telling them about my dad's belt. And, of course, my parents are here listening to this, and, uh, and, and they're trying to argue for themselves. Like, no, it wasn't like that. And I'm saying, yeah, it was. You know, it was really as bad. My dad had this belt in, in, when I was a kid that had his name across the back of it. Anybody else have their parents have, you know? And so my dad's name is Randy. And so across the back of his belt, it, you know, had in these embroidered, or embossed letters, Randy. And when he would take his belt off to spank us, you know, if he got you really good, you'd have about half of his name across your backside, you know? And, and that's what I was describing to my kids. You know, you'd get spanked, and then you, he would say, Andy, on your, on your bottom or something, right? <laughs> and they're, they're, they're like, no. And my parents are like, no, it wasn't. And I don't know, maybe I was making it worse than it really was, but I have these memories, right? And here's what I didn't understand as a child. My parents would do probably what so many other parents have said before them, right? What their parents said to them. Something along the lines of, I don't enjoy doing this. And I remember thinking, yeah, right, you know? Of course you do. But as a parent now who disciplines my own children, I, I totally get what I didn't get as a child, right? I don't enjoy disciplining my children. 
I find no delight in, in having to discipline them, but yet I'm committed to do it because I love them and because I see shaping their character and shaping their heart as well as their behavior as one of my primary roles as their parent. God gave them to us as parents to shepherd and lead. And, and so I understand that if I don't tell them no and if I don't discipline them when they're wrong, then I'm not doing my job right. And I'll answer to God someday for that, right? And the scripture teach us something similar. That God disciplines us, not because he's angry, not because he's waiting for us to step out of line, but because he loves us. In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews describes for us the love that God has for his children that he disciplines. And so in Hebrews 12, 5, we read this. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one that he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. And so what the scripture is painting for us is a picture of God's love for us in his discipline. And then look at verse uh, look at verse 11. It says, "For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it." So the fruit of righteousness that comes in our lives through discipline is worth the pain that we go through along the way. God disciplines us not because he's angry, because he loves us. And some of you who are here today, some of us need to hear that word because maybe right now you're walking through a season of life where you're experiencing the discipline of God and you may be angry at him and you may feel like, and if God loved me, why am I going through this? And the word that you need to hear today is this. God doesn't discipline you because he's mad at you. God is long-suffering. That means he's patient. But God disciplines you because he loves you. And because he loves you, he doesn't want you to live in a life of sin. Warren Wearsby said this. He's a, a well-known pastor, and, and he's written a lot of commentaries. And he says this, Chastening is the evidence of God's hatred of sin and his love for his people. In other words, God chastens us, God disciplines us, which is evidence to us that God hates sin, but that he loves us. So God disciplines us, and we ought to respond with humility and with obedience. Secondly, we see this, that we ought to gravitate toward the places where we see that God is at work. I, I, I talk often, and I give examples from the the study experiencing God. I went through the study experiencing God for the first time when I was a student in high school. And to this day, 20 years later in my life, I continue to rely on lessons that I learned. I mean, it has shaped me as a Christian. If you've never done that study, I, would, I cannot recommend it highly enough. The author is named Henry Blackaby. The name of the study is Experiencing God, and it is phenomenal. You, you ought to go through it. And in the study, Experiencing God, I remember learning this truth, that we should look to find where God is at work around us, and we should join him. 
that you should look. God is always at work around us. He's always up to something. And that you and I should look for the ways that God is at work. Look for the things that he's blessing. Look for the things that he's called us to. Look for where his hand is at work around us. And then we should join him there. In other words, look for what God has anointed and follow his anointing. That's what Gideon has done. That's what we ought to do as well. We ought to gravitate toward the places where we see that God is at work. In that study, this is what Blackaby writes. When you see the Father at work around you, that is your invitation to adjust your life to him and join him in that work. You may say, well, how do I know if God's wanting me to do this? If you see what God's up to, there's your invitation, right? There's your invitation to join him. You should look for God's hand, look for his anointing, and gravitate toward that. And then third, we see this, that we ought to receive God's voice as a call to action. So when God speaks, when God moves and we hear him, when we perceive his work in our lives, that we ought to, we ought to see that as a call to action. And just as Gideon took action over what God was calling him to do, we ought to take action when God speaks. Ask yourself this question. How would my life be different if it became my daily habit to listen to what God has to say and then to do it? How different would your life be if it became your daily habit to search the scripture for God's word for you for that day? To listen to God through, through prayer. How different would your life be if you made it your daily habit to seek him and then to do what he said? Every time God speaks, we ought to receive that as a call to action. When God speaks, we ought to move. We ought to obey and do what he's called us to. What sins would you get rid of in your life? What attitudes would you change? What people would hear the gospel because you chose to respond to God in obedience and faith? How would God work in you if you would make it your daily habit to search for his voice, to listen to him, and then do what he says. We ought to receive God's voice as a call to action. Remember that in this story, Gideon is not some iconic, heroic figure. He's the anti-type of a hero, right? He's not who you would expect, and yet he is the one that God uses in a mighty way. Because he heard the voice of God, and he obeyed. Today, how might God be speaking to you and, and how might that be leading you to obey him, leading you in some different direction other than where you see that your life is headed right now? You know, I, I think of uh, today of all days, is, I mean, what a day for God to uh, deliver this word to us because, you know, today we, we were talking about this, this morning as our staff, as we met to pray together and we do that on Sunday mornings. We meet together before everyone's here really and we spend time in prayer and just kind of talk through the day and we were talking about what a day for God to give us this word. I mean, on the day that we're celebrating that, that God is moving the heavens, something that we've all confessed we don't want to see happen and yet God has spoken and they've obeyed. And what a great example that sets for us how might God be speaking to you, and, and where might that be leading you? It might require drastic change, the kind of change that says, well, okay, Lord, we'll drop everything to follow you. And it might be 
that it just means you need to take some simple steps of obedience. Whatever it is, as God speaks, would you be willing to listen? And then in humility, would you obey his voice? His call is a call to action. So in a moment, we're going to have a time of response. During our time of response today, I want to call us to take this and put it into practice in our lives. So as we sing this song of response in a moment, I hope that you would be willing to go before the Lord in prayer and say, God, how do you want to move me? How do you want to give direction to my life? Lord, I I confess, I don't feel like someone who can do great things for you, but God, if you are calling me to action, I want to respond in obedience. And as we pray those great prayers of action and faith, I would call you, I would challenge you to respond in obedience. For some, maybe it means that there's a sin that you've got to, that you've got to get rid of in your life. Maybe there's something that's got to change in order for you to obey the Lord. For some, maybe it means that there's, there's some kind of an action that you've got to take, like someone that you need to share your faith with, someone that you need to reach out to and love, someone that you need to forgive, some piece of your past, some altar of sin in your past that you've got to tear down so that you can move forward with what God wants to do in your life. What is it that God wants to do what he's calling you to do? So as we respond to him this morning, I would encourage you to come and and kneel before him in prayer. Our altars will be open and our staff will be here ready to receive you. Maybe for some in the the room today, the way that you need to respond in, in obedience is through surrender. You need to surrender your life to Jesus. You need to respond to him by faith to make him truly the Lord and Savior of your life by turning from your sin and turning to him so that God can transform you so that he can do for you what you could never do for yourself. How is it that God wants to speak and move in your life today? Whatever it is, it's always a call to action. And so I pray that as we respond to him, you would take action this morning. Would you pray with me? God, now as we respond to you by faith, I pray that